Welcome to the Unique Garden Show, hosted by Mike Branning, owner of the Unique Garden Center. Join us each week right here as Mike discusses gardening topics and takes your calls and questions. Our call-in number is 366-8471. Now, here's your host, Mike Branning. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing, man? Doing good. The temperature seemed to really drop this past week. For the first time this year, I had to, like, scrape the ice off my car before coming into work. It was really icy this morning. Oh, yeah. My whole car was covered in ice. Yeah. Yeah, I got home late, and uh, it wasn't like that. But, yeah, the early morning hours, I went out this morning, and I had to go in and get a pitcher of water to pour on the windshield because the wipers wouldn't take it off. Right. I guess now's the time of year that the frost is coming. You've got to start taking your plants inside that are cold sensitive. Exactly. Yeah, especially, you know, people, a lot of grower nurseries will carry succulents now because they're a really big item because of the water issue, you know, within California. And succulents do really well if you're in the low desert all the way to the coast. Uh, But there's only a handful that really handle the cold in the Morongo Basin. So a lot of times nurseries will carry these succulents and people go in there thinking that, well, they carry them so they must do well because you wouldn't carry them if they didn't do well, which happens all the time, unfortunately. And, um, and so then they end up getting damaged or die back completely. So, yeah. Right. It's, kind of, it's a rookie mistake. Some, a lot of people have made it. I have definitely made it when we first moved up here. But you just live and you learn. But a lot of people don't realize how cold it gets during the wintertime. Exactly. It's like, oh, desert. It must be like champagne weather year-round. But mm-hmm. no, it gets real cold. It, yes, it does. And uh, yeah, this past couple of days definitely got cold. Like, Well, especially last night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, it's kind of cool, though. Oh, yeah. It's always nice... Um, to get that nice, like, refreshing cold air when you right. walk outside in the morning. Exactly. It's, like, nice and crisp. Right, right. So, right on. So, yeah, I thought we would, you know, beans that we're into February now, and before you know it, we're going to be knocking on the door for March, and people are going to start thinking about getting projects going for their yard and whatnot. And uh, so I thought we'd discuss a few things that you could plant that would be not only aesthetically pleasing for the yard, but also bee-friendly as well. <laughs> I think uh, Puck's Tony Phil said it, uh, on Groundhog's Day it's going to be an early uh, spring this year. I saw that in the news, yeah. So hopefully the cold weather doesn't last too long and we can get into nice springtime weather. Right. But if you haven't already, start trimming back stuff before it gets too warm. Yeah, if you have any trimming to do on your roses or fruit trees, then definitely the window opportunity is getting narrow right so if you're going to do it get on it sooner than later because all it's going to take is a burst of warm weather and with the moisture that we've had and it's going to start making everything pop out with new growth so definitely put that on your agenda if you haven't done it yet to get in there and get it done right no doubt let me just take a quick swallow here and just as a reminder, folks, that call-in number is 760-366-8471, and you can call in with any and all of your gardening <coughs> questions. So, yeah. I mean, there's so many, when you think about what you want to plant, and again, I always encourage everybody, rather than just going to a nursery or a garden center and seeing when you're ready to do a project at home, rather than just going out there and seeing what they have, and buying things on impulse uh, and then planting them without knowing what their growth pattern is going to be. 
uh, to always take the time and draw. You don't have to make it to scale, but draw a bubble sketch of the area that you're going to be landscaping and redoing. And then, you know, go look at a couple of nurseries and see what they have. And then also maybe get some recommendations or if you have a, a friend or neighbor that's got a plant that you saw last year in bloom or whatever, go, to, you know, check it out and see what's going on. And try to get a preliminary landscape plan going so that when you do plant, then everything that you do plant will be the right plant for that location and not something that's going to get humongously big and then outgrow the area. Right. And always take into consideration as well natives before non-natives. And also, there's a lot of things that you got to take into consideration. You got to take into consideration climate and soil, how much sunlight. So there's a lot more planning than you would think going into landscaping. Right. Exactly. And then on top of that, if you do think about, you know, if you go that far, then take it a step further and think about the honeybee. You know, because people don't realize that the honeybee, uh, they're in peril. And as of 10 years ago, worldwide, the hive population was down 45%. Well, it's not just bees. It's actually most insect species. Or there's a huge decline. I don't know if you've heard of the windshield phenomenon. Do you I know, um, like a couple of years, maybe like five, ten years ago, when you um, <laughs> when you drive, you would get like a ton of bugs on your windshield. Right. And now, when you're driving, you almost get no bugs on your windshield. Right. And that's kind of what that windshield phenomenon is. So it's not just honeybees. You want to promote native plants in your landscape for just insects in general. You know, and there's a lot of theory as to why that's happening. And, uh, you know, there's a, a term called colony collapse disorder, <clears throat> which is affecting bees. And basically what happens is the bees leave the hive to go collect pollen, and then they forget how to get back to their hive. And so after, you know, a few thousand bees can't make it back, uh, and they just end up dying off, then the whole hive will collapse because there's nothing being brought back to the hive. And, uh, and there's several, you know, theories as to why that's happening. Uh, but, you know, one thing you have to really keep in mind, too, is, you know, what they're doing agriculturally, you know, with the genetically modified plants that are uh, being promoted and developed that will be uh, they, they have systemic insecticides already in the plant <clears throat> so when the plant germinates then it can rather than having to spray the fields with any kind of insecticide then it's already within the plant system itself right and just the climate in general too the um, even <laughs> like cold and hot weather brings like certain timings and in insects and their timing can be off Right. And it could be detrimental to, the, to them. Sure. They could die early or when they're supposed to do something, they just don't do it in time. And then it causes a catastrophe in their population. Sure. You know, and um, so whatever the reasons are, the, the reality is, is it's real. And uh, so if you can do things in, within your own landscape that will encourage bee activity, then you'll be doing your part to help the bees out. And we'll go over a list of uh, plants that you can use here in a minute. But uh, one thing that people don't realize is uh, the health values 
in whether it be honey and, and there again you know a lot of honey that you buy in the market has been so heavily processed that other than being honey it doesn't have any of the food values and the benefits that it had because of the overprocessing of it but the more doggone but the more pure you can buy it and you can buy it uh, honey in pure form it is available but we'll just take pollen as, as an example pollen is a rich source of protein and vitamin b12 and vitamin b12 can be kind of a difficult vitamin to obtain as extremely you know vital for your overall function and uh it's considered one of the one of nature's most complete nourishing foods you can almost if you had to, you could virtually live on bee pollen. I think honey too, as well. Yeah, you can just basically. It's so good for you that you could just exactly. survive off of it. And uh, it has uh, almost half of the protein is in the form of free amino acids that become available to your system upon digestion. Right, and another good thing about honey, it's it'll last almost forever. I've exactly. never seen honey go bad. Right, exactly. And um, so, you know, it basically it reduces, you know, cravings and addictions. It regulates your the gut system. It builds new blood. And then it goes on and on and on. And, uh, and that's just when you buy bee pollen. So I know when I do my smoothies and whatnot, I put uh, bee pollen in my smoothies. So I consume bee pollen every day. Mike, you got to open up a smoothie shop. These smoothies just sound so amazing. So, or start serving them at the nursery. Have I ever given you a smoothie yet? No, I haven't tried one of your world-famous okay. smoothies yet. I'll, I'll bring you one next week. All right, we'll and you can try, try it live. It but yeah, they have uh, 24 things are in my smoothies. That sounds kind of overkill, um, but... Uh, they're it's pretty tasty. Sounds though. like just a healthy, like a health bomb. It's just so good for you, filled with all sorts of good stuff. It, yeah, it is. And you know, it's taken a long time to get to the point to where it is now, <clears throat> just through you know trial and error and adding things and doing more research and then adding this and that. And um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, definitely something that I think is, is enjoyable. And for those people that are adventurous in the kitchen out there, one thing that you could do with honey that I've tried is you can actually ferment things in honey. So I've fermented garlic in honey before. And when you ferment it in the garlic and the honey, the honey gets a little bit watery. So you can kind of drizzle it on stuff as like a sauce. And it's like this garlicky, spicy, savory honey sauce. Mm -hmm. And then you could just eat the garlic itself. And garlic like raw garlic is super good for you exactly along with the honey and that's like another little like just health bomb it's just right. fermented honey and garlic right and you know and even <clears throat> during the summertime if you're out working or if you're whether it be you know physical work or sports or whatever and you're feeling fatigued and run down it's a hot day uh, you can take apple cider vinegar you take two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar and two tablespoons of honey and put it in a jar with water and drink it and that will within a half hour will bring you back around again and you'll feel energized and feel good yeah probably better than a gatorade and way better than a gatorade no doubt and uh and so yeah so 
<clears throat> these are all things that are brought on because of bees. And what people also don't realize is that one in three bites of food that you eat is because of the honeybee. That's how important their role is to the survival of mankind. They're one of the biggest pollinators out there. Oh, yeah. Bee, and you wouldn't, you'd be kind of surprised by the other one, bats. Bats are another huge pollinator. I didn't know that. Yeah, if the whole agriculture, <clears throat> um, it, would, it would collapse without bats. Bats are huge pollinators. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, and Einstein theorized back in his day <clears throat> that without the honeybee, the window of mankind's existence would be five years. Oh, yeah. That's how important the honeybee is, and yet people don't really realize that. And so, you know, they're quick to, you know, swat a bee or whatever because it's got in their house or it's in their car or whatever. And they have this adamant fear that the bee is out to sting them, and they're not. They only will sting when they're when they feel threatened. Yeah, and it's just people have a negative connotation. I just think with insects in general, and you got to learn mm. to instead of like killing them or getting rid of them, kind of learn to coexist with them. Coexist with your with the bees, with the spiders. Take the spiders outside. You know, don't just squash them because exactly. the spiders are there to help you. They'll kill all the pests outside. You know. I know some people think I'm kind of weird because they'll come over to my house or whatever and. And uh, I'll find a spider. And most people, the first thing they do is just, you know, smash it or kill it or whatever. And I'll go grab a piece of paper or a pen or whatever and pick it up and take it outside. And uh, they go, what are you doing? I go, I'm taking the spider outside. Well, just kill it. You know? I go, why? I go, it's got a right to live. Right. You know? And... uh and actually, if I have a spider in a spot in the house, like we'll say in my room behind the TV set where you ever rarely ever go to, um, I just let them live there. Right. Just leave it be. I never go back there. Right. You know? And if I do go back there to clean or whatever, then I can say, okay, dude, you got to go outside now. Right. <clears throat> but other than that, I mean, other insects that I don't like get caught in his web. And then they aren't there to bother me because he's doing his job. Right. It's just, it's all about coexistence. And that's one mindset I think we got to start getting into. Right. Is coexistence with bees, with spiders, with basically, they're your neighbors. Just Mother Earth in general. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But some of the things, as far as if all this sounds good to you so far and and, uh, bee awareness you weren't, you know, aware of. And then how you can relate to what you plant in your yard. And again, what I'm saying is when you, anything that blooms will attract a bee. But there are some things that are proven bee magnets where the, they just flock to this oh, yeah, there's just like you a know, beacon plant or tree. It's <clears throat> like a beacon right there saying, you know, here I am. So, you know, some of the things that bloom that still attract bees that aren't a bee magnet those can be planted in and around, like, say, a, an outside living area, patio, near a front door, because you don't want to attract, you know, an onslaught of bees in your own personal space. Uh, but areas that they, where they're further away from your space, uh, then you can plant things, like, as a rule of thumb, 
If you're going to go in with a zero-escape landscape, which I would definitely recommend that people think about doing to conserve water, that across the board, all cactus will be a bee magnet when they're in bloom. Oh, yeah. They, if you've been here for any amount of time, if you have a cactus that blooms, there's always bees in it. Right. You know, and cactus have a very short bloom window, <clears throat> but, they have a, but when they're in bloom, the bees are all over them. And so anything that you plant cactus-wise will work out really well. And then if you're going to be planting, say, a tree, then things to think about using would be the desert willow. And the desert willow is a very drought-tolerant large shrub or a small tree. And from late spring through fall, they're in bloom, so they give a lot of color. Uh, Then the Palo Verde has a doesn't bloom as long it gets a yellow flower in the same time frame late spring early summer <clears throat> and um and when they're in bloom then the bees are all over it uh all mesquites especially the honey mesquite which is a semi-native and they'll attract uh, numerous bees and then across the board almost any pine tree when they're in bloom or a heavy bee attractant Olive trees, you plant an olive tree. So, again, you don't have to plant hardcore native trees. You can plant things that will blend and fit into a zero-escape landscape but have a softer look to them. And that's where the pine trees come in, the olive, and even the mulberry. If you already have a pre-existing mulberry, when mulberries are in bloom, they're a really heavy target for the bees. Right, and we've talked about the cat claws before. Cat claws are also... They, bees love them when oh, they're in bloom. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they're, they're in bee heaven when the cat claws are in bloom. Right, and they're going to go outside like as a border plant exactly. in your, in your yeah. landscape. So it's a perfect place for both bees and a little bit of like a natural structure right there. Exactly. You know, And if you have it planted along the fence line, no one's going to cross over your fence. Yeah, you got bees and spikes. No one's going to touch that. I mean, yeah. I mean, the bees are one thing, but on top of that, but just the uh, the thorns alone on the cat claw, no one's going to come walking through that cat claw bush. Right. And not only that, but if you do have any outside activity when the plant is in bloom, even though the bloom of the cat claw is, is really insignificant, but when it's in bloom in the early morning and the evening, the fragrance that they give off is just awesome. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, and if you go for any kind of a hike in the uh, – out in the open desert and you're in an area where you have a lot of wild cat claw and they're in bloom and you may not even know really what's even in bloom as as far as what's bringing the smell on and it'll be the cat claw right and it's such uh, a unique smell and so for something that almost nobody likes and everybody wants to get rid of um they i mean a cat claw is kind of like a choya who wants them around but uh, when they're in bloom, and if you have them in an outside outlying area of the yard, um, it'd be a win-win, you know, for you as far as not having to have anybody come over your fence. And then you have this awesome smell when they're in bloom, and then the bees would be totally digging on it, and uh, and it'd be great. Well, not only do the bees love it, quail. If you like quail in your yard, quail and all sorts of birds really like that because it provides an excellent cover for them because predators aren't going to get in that exactly so if you like the quail in your yard or any sort of wildlife cat claw is great yeah even I mean, whether you're a two-legged you know predator or a four-legged predator if they're in if you're inside the cat claw 
nothing's going to go in there and get you. Right. That's just the bottom line. And uh, and then so yeah, we already talked about cat claw. And so then another native would be creosote, and we've talked about that in the past. And even though they look rangy and woody out in the wild, but if they're in a maintained landscape and get a little bit of water, then they're going to be really lush and thick and full, and they're going to bloom heavily, and they smell really good when it after a good rain. Uh, and we mentioned desert broom last week, and then also Texas sage that gets a purple flower. And I think probably every third yard in the Morongo Basin has rosemary. Yep. And, uh, and, but it's, you know, not only is it a good plant for using and cooking and aromatherapy for the house, but it's just a great food source, again, for the bees. And, and it's a hardy it. shrub, too. It'll, it'll survive a frost like what we had this morning. Oh, easily. Yeah, easily. And then you have the desert bird. And that is going to be a shrub that's going to get a yellow flower with uh, red stamens. And it's very. And these are all drought-tolerant plants that will fit really well into your landscape, take a minimal amount of water, and yet give you a lot of bang for the buck as far as color. Right. And speaking of <clears throat> color, one thing that maybe you may, may not have uh, taken into consideration is the color of the blooms and where you want pollinators in your yard. Mm-hmm. Because with the different blooms, different things are going to respond to that. Like right. the red, the really red flowers are going to be, the hummingbirds are going to be all over that. Exactly. So just take into consideration where you want your pollinators in your yard as well. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, the native buckwheat, um, again, you see it in the wild and it's always looking kind of woody and half dead. But with a little bit of water, looks 100% different from what it does in the wild. And it's an excellent shrub, does really, really well, as does even the Mormon tea have a really nice look to it when it gets a little bit of water. And then you have the desert marigold, which reseeds quite readily. And the thing about the desert marigold is you can plant just a couple of them, and then they'll reseed within the landscape and basically will naturalize and kind of give your landscape more of a natural flow because they're popping up volunteering here and there. And then you can individually, when you go through and weed the property and the, the landscape, you can keep and pick and choose what you want to keep. And if you're getting too many desert marigolds coming up, then you can just pull the whole the ones you don't want and leave the ones that are a good accent plant. And they'll bloom all the way through summer right. with and a yellow flower. If you don't know what these plants look like, I highly recommend going to the Mojave Desert Land Trust. They have some gardens outside of their building that you can walk through and take a look at how these plants look. And you can go there at certain times of the year and see how they look and kind of plan your landscape that way sure. for natives. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, <clears throat> me, the desert mallow is another. The native one is a, is a real pure orange flower. But then you also have... Other ones that are not natives, but they will grow very well here. And they bloom either in pink and white and like an orange-red. And uh, and so you could do a combination of those. And, you know, a lot of these natives, they only have a one bloom period in the wild. But if you, being in the landscape, if you if they get a little bit of water, and if you go through and when, they're, when they go through a bloom cycle, if you deadhead them, then they'll put new growth on, and then they'll come back and bloom again. So you can get anywhere from two to three bloom periods 
out of a native that would only normally give you one. And yeah, if we have like a rain season like how we did this year, I got multiple blooms out of my uh, apricot mallow in my yard. Exactly. It was it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, deadheading it plays a huge role in what the plant production is going to do because in the wild, they're not being deadheaded. And so once they have that one bloom, then they may put in a little sporadic bloom here and there, but they're kind of done for the year. Uh, but if they're deadheaded and with that, extra water whether it be natural or artificial that'll promote that new growth and with that new growth you're going to get new bloom right it's one of the prettiest plants out here in my opinion is the desert mallow oh yeah no doubt absolutely and then another kind of not thought about too often is the turpentine bush and they don't get too large they get roughly about two by three and they get a a yellow flower and nothing overly showy but the flower does grow in a mass, and so it covers the entire plant, and uh, so it looks really, really nice. And uh, again, these are all plants that you can easily work into your landscape. And then there's uh, some of the non-natives that you can think about incorporating. Uh, there's a plant called Euphorbia, and that'll be coming into bloom here very soon. And it's going to be the, one of the first blooms of the season, even before the natives come into bloom. And uh, they do very well. So by having a, a couple of euphorbias in the landscape, even though it's too early for a lot of things to bloom, by the euphorbia blooming, then that's going to bring some bee activity because things are already beginning to bloom. And so you can kind of get the ball rolling by having the euphorbia come in. And then soon after the euphorbias are in bloom, then the other natives begin to start popping in. Right. And the euphorbia has such a weird looking little flower. Right. They're super cool, though. If you've never seen a uh, euphorbia flower, take a look at it. It's really neat. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the any varieties of lavender do really well. And it'll take a little bit more water, not a whole lot, but more than a native. <clears throat> but that's going to give you your lavenders and your purples. And they're going to bloom from spring through fall. If you deadhead them a couple times, they'll go for spring through fall and give you color all throughout. So there's a lot of things you can do and incorporate that'll really make a really interesting, aesthetically pleasing landscape to look at. Right. A lot of food for thought this Saturday, and it looks like that's all the time that we have this Saturday. Make sure to tune in next week for another Unique Garden Show, and thank you, Mike, for coming in. Always a pleasure speaking with you. You bet. You have a good day. You too. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Unique Garden Show, hosted by Mike Branning of Unique Garden Center. Join us again next week at the same time, 8.30 to 9 a.m. with your questions and calls, right here on Z1077. For more information, call Mike at 365-1511.